Good morning, Exchange family. I hope you're well. We are in Exodus chapter 24 this morning as we kind of continue to plow through and find our way uh, through the text that the Lord has given us, preserved for us, and instructed us through. And so I would invite you there uh, if you have your Bibles. Also, if uh, you use your device, if you download or have an app called the Church Center app, it's a general app. But when you uh, download that app, uh, Exchange Church uh, is integrated in that. And so it'll find you or you can type us in. When you do that, uh, the home screen has a little button that says Sermon Notes. And you can click that anytime during the week. And every single passage that we use is documented there for you. Uh, We encourage you to go through Scripture with us so that we're not just telling you what we think the Bible says. We want you to read along with us and to say, yes, this is what God says about these things. And so we would invite you to do that. It also has ways that you can stay connected, register for events, uh, and know what's going on. And so I would encourage you uh, to use that app. Would you pray with me as we uh, open the Lord's Word? Lord, uh, changes this morning. I pray that you would uh, use these words that you've given us, thousands of years old, that somehow miraculously and supernaturally speak to our hearts and our minds today. Lord, would you quiet our minds and our hearts so that we can hear from you. It's your name that we pray. Amen. 1994... The great theologian, philosopher, Alan Jackson, came out with a song called, I Don't Even Know Your Name. It's about a guy who goes into a late night diner and has an experience with two very different waitresses. One that's absolutely beautiful and the other who is on the opposite end of that spectrum, right? And so in in an attempt for some courage in a glass, he goes too far and ends up marrying, by mistake, the waitress without any teeth at all. And the tagline is, I'm married to you, baby, and I don't even know your name. In 2007, Carrie Underwood, another country artist, followed up with a song uh, from a girl's perspective with the same kind of problem. She writes and sings, today I woke up thinking about Elvis somewhere in Vegas, I'm not sure how I got here, or how this ring on my left hand just appeared. Out of nowhere, I got to go, take the chips, and the pinto hit the road. They say what happens here stays here, and all of this will disappear. There's just one little problem. I don't know my last name. My mama would be so ashamed, right? And so uh, I can imagine if you're not a country music fan, you're thinking right now at this minute, that's why. Because (laughs) Because they write things like that, right? And you're probably thinking, uh, you know, this is a dumb song, and like all other songs, they, they end like this. Uh, but I'm not sure that this is so far from our humanity here, uh, that most often in many moments in life, many of us have made promises uh, that we have no idea what we're actually doing at the time. Maybe we think we do in that moment. Maybe, uh, maybe for, ev- for you, every promise you've ever made, you can think back to yourself, I know exactly what I'm getting into in this moment. I know the terms. I know the conditions. I know how this will play out. But most of us have experienced, maybe not, we don't have a ring on our finger because of it, but many of us have experiences where we commit to something or we promise something and we have no idea what we're actually promising or committing to. 
And I think many of us would probably be tempted to look at the situation with Israel and God like this. He brings them out of Egypt, takes them out to Mount Sinai and says, okay, now let's commit together. And they're like, okay, I don't know what that means, but yes, we are your people. That is the exact opposite of what has happened. Up until this point, the Lord has brought Israel. He's come to Egypt for them and has shown them his power and authority over Egypt the Pharaoh, nature, all of the things. He's brought them through the Red Sea. He's defeated the Amorites for them. He's provided water from a rock, manna from heaven, quail that infest their camp at night. And he brings them to Mount Sinai. We talked about this last week. He brings them to Mount Sinai. In chapter 19, it says that Moses brought the people there to meet God. And in that moment... God rests his glory on Mount Sinai in a way that causes Israel to literally shake. The the mountain shakes and quakes. There's lightning. There's thunder. The entire mountain, it says, shakes. There's trumpets that are blowing in a way that is so loud that they cannot hear each other uh, talk. They can't hardly think. They know who God is, but even at that moment, they're still unaware of what he requires. And yet, in Exodus chapter 19, before the Lord lays out the law, even the basic part of the law, before they have the Ten Commandments, in Exodus chapter 19, Israel makes this statement, and they say, all the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. He hasn't really spoken anything yet. He hasn't even given them the Ten Commandments yet. He's not outlined the law for them. They are responding to the power and the authority and the presence of God. Rightly so, probably. But still, they still do not know exactly what they're committing to. And so we have, over the past uh, three chapters... We see uh, this ceremony really between God and Israel in chapter 24 and 19, 20, 21, 22, and 23 even. We see the terms of this covenant that God is laying out for Israel. They know exactly what they're promising to. And so for the past three chapters, God is giving his people his law for their lives in the form of a covenant. First, he gives them a history lesson. He reminds them of how he has brought them out of Egypt, out of slavery. He has saved them. This was to remind them that they should obey him and that their very lives uh, were, were um, saved from him. God had the right to tell them and not to serve other gods, to make other idols, to dishonor his name, to murder, steal, break any of his covenants. He was Israel's savior. And so the Israelites had to honor him as Lord. He was their God, and they were his people. And this is what the Bible means as the covenant that they're going into. But not only does Exodus 24 tell us how the covenant was ratified, it also underscores the limitations of this covenant, the first covenant, and shows us, makes us long for a better covenant. So as we open up our passage today, I think we'll see some things that are really important for Israel, but also for us. So let's begin in Exodus chapter 24, and he says, And then he said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, and Nadab, and Abihu, uh, which is interesting. I would say, uh, just as a side note, we will get to this later, uh, these guys are Aaron's sons. They are invited up into the very presence of God like no one else. 
And later on in Scripture, these two brothers are the same ones who offer up strange fire to the Lord and are consumed by Him immediately. It's crazy how they would experience the goodness and the glory of God and yet try to do things their own way, isn't it? So he says to them, and the 70 elders of Israel, and you shall worship at a distance. Now there's a couple of questions that the human heart may have in the first verse of this passage. Maybe they're just my questions, and you haven't asked any of these yet. God commands Moses and Aaron and elders of Israel to worship. And it sounds uh, like a bold request, or even a very bold and audacious Command. Shouldn't worship be something that we choose to do? Shouldn't worship be something that we get to decide when we come in if we're in the mood for? What if the elders of Israel had a bad day? What if they weren't quite convinced yet that God was worthy of their worship? What if some of the elders had a problem with Moses and didn't really believe that he should be leading this worship service? Couldn't all of those objections kind of pause their worship or say, I'm not able to worship today because of these reasons? See, God doesn't allow any, uh, anything to stand in the way of what he is worthy of. And he says, I will command you to come to me and to worship me. It's not just an invitation, it's a command. Maybe you haven't thought of that. I'm glad I'm really not the only one. Early in his Christian life, C.S. Lewis struggled with this same idea that we would be commanded to worship, to give him glory. And however, he soon realized that this stumbling block was due to this misconception of God and a misunderstanding of what praise really is. He writes in his book, Reflections on Psalms, this passage. He says, the most obvious fact about praise, whether of God or anything else, strangely escaped me. I thought of it in terms of compliment or approval or giving of honor. I'd never noticed that all employment spontaneously overflows into praise unless two things exist. Shyness or fear of boring others. The world rings with praise. Lovers praise their mistress. Readers, their favorite poet. poet. Walkers praise the countryside. Players praise their favorite game. Praise of weather, wines, dishes, actors, motors, horses, colleges, countries, historical persons, children, flowers, mountains, rare stamps, rare beetles, and even sometimes politicians and scholars. I had not noticed how the humblest and at the same time most balanced minds praise most what the cranks, misfits, and, and praise least, and we sometimes praise the least, except where intolerance, adverse circumstances interfere, praise almost seems to be the inner health made audible. He goes on. I had not noticed either that just as men spontaneously praise whether they value or they spontaneously urge them to join in the praising of it. Isn't she lovely? Wasn't that glorious? Don't you think this is magnificent? It's as if we are tuned to invite others to praise what we honor. The psalmist in that same regard telling everyone to praise God and are doing what all men do when they speak of what they care about. My whole general difficult about praising God depended on my absurd uh, denying to us as regards to the supreme value that we delight to do what we do, worship. 
I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It's not out of compliment that lovers keep telling each other how beautiful they are. They delight in one another. If it were possible to create a soul fully to appreciate, that is to love, delight, and in the worthiest object of all, spontaneously at every moment to give this delight perfect expression that the soul would be supreme in worship. The Scotch Catechism says that man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. But we shall know that these are the same things. To fully enjoy is to glorify. And so when the Lord commands Moses and Aaron and Israel to come up and worship, He's inviting them in to know Him. And in knowing him, he says, the only response is to worship. It's the only thing that we can do. It's as if even sometimes the most busiest of us, the most calloused of us, when we say someone points our eyes in the direction of a sunset full of colors, it's hard for even the most calloused of us to look at it and say, oh, Even when the room is full with our peers and we're afraid to express our delight in something like that, there's something within us that kind of takes our breath away when we see something that majestic. And is that the case? The Lord is inviting Israel up in a way to see him, to know him and experience him and thus worship. The prophet Isaiah said it like this in Isaiah 61.10. He says, I will rejoice greatly in the Lord. Why? My soul will exalt in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has wrapped me with a robe of righteousness, and as a bridegroom decks himself with garland, as his bride adorns herself with jewels. He says, because of what the Lord has done for me, he has saved me, I will worship. See, God invites and commands his people to worship him because of who he is and what he has done. I love what 1 Chronicles 16 says. It says this, Sing to the Lord all the earth. Proclaim his salvation day after day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous deeds among all peoples. For great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. He is to be feared above all God. Psalm 150 says, Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Hebrews 13, Through Him then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge His name. Even us speaking the name of God, singing the name of God, coming in together as Daniel led us in this morning to gather together, as Ed said, pushing the coals closer together to say, let us worship. Worship God because he's worthy of it. Not because we feel like it. Not because the song was our, like our, our heart song. Not because we liked that particular beat or because we liked that tune or because we liked that arrangement or because everything in our world went spectacular this week or because we woke up and weren't tired or because the coffee was good or because somebody greeted us with a smile. We don't worship because of any of those things. We worship because he's worthy of it. 
There was no predecessors to, to the invitation and the command to call Moses up and say, now I'm, I'm going to call you up and you're going to worship. Why? Because I'm here. I'm going to show you who I am. And the only response is worship. I think too often we confuse what worship really is and we align that somehow, some way with our circumstance. It's if we're able to worship on the mountain but not in the valley. And even if that's true, what we're really doing is we're tying our worship to our circumstance which means possibly that our circumstance has more weight in our heart than the person of God. We worship because he's worthy of it. And here's the second question. Verse 2, he says this, and he commands uh, the people, and he, he says to Moses, but Moses alone, however, shall come near to the Lord. And they shall not come near, nor shall the people come up with him. So uh, the Lord is commanding the elders of Israel, 70 of them, uh, in combination with Moses, Joshua, Aaron, and his two sons, who will become uh, the priests of the nation. They will come from there. He's commanding them to come up. But then he says, so you guys are going to come up. You're going to experience the glory of God. And then you guys are going to stay there. And Moses alone is going to come up the mountain and meet with God. Why does the Lord require us to worship him, but also require us to stand back? I think, here's the answer. God is preparing Israel and us that humanity will always need a mediator. We are incapable of stepping into the presence of God alone and on our own righteousness. We're incapable of it. And so Moses is the mediator. He acts as the go-between for God and for Israel. He represents Israel to God as a priest and represents God to Israel as a prophet. He has to go back and forth. And on several occasions, as we'll see in, in later chapters, Moses comes down from the mountain and he speaks on behalf of God. There's other times, like in Numbers chapter 13 and 14, where Israel refuses to go into the land that God has promised them. God is literally going to wipe them out and start over over with Moses. That's what he says, Moses, I'm going to do. Moses pleads on behalf of the people. And he says, Lord, do not do this. Please behalf on behalf of your name. So we see this dual role where Moses is literally interceding on behalf of God and interceding on behalf of the people. Joshua takes up the mantle, and I'm sure Israel thought maybe he would be a better mediator. Moses couldn't cut it. Moses disobeyed. He's not allowed to go into the land. Maybe it's Joshua. Maybe Joshua is the one who's going to be the perfect mediator. But we know that Joshua dies also, and so did the judges, and so did David, and so did the prophets. And Israel was left waiting and wondering, well, why? do we constantly need another mediator? Why is it that this mediator cannot stay for us, with us? And Paul says that there is one perfect mediator, and his name is Jesus. Notice what 1 Timothy 2 verse 5 says, that there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony given at the proper time. The writer of Hebrews says it this way, Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus 
the apostle and high priest of our confession, he was faithful to him who appointed him. As Moses also was all in his house, for he has been in the counted worthy of more glory than Moses. By just so much as the builder of the house has more honor than the house. For every house is built by someone, the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in his, all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken later. But Christ was faithful as the son over the house, whose house we are, if we hold fast to our conf- uh, confidence and boast of our hope firm until the end. He says Moses was a great mediator for a little bit. Christ is our one perfect, permanent mediator. This wasn't just taught by Paul, but this was declared by Jesus himself. This is the bold statement that Jesus makes in John chapter 14 that literally was the crux of where the people began to have a problem with him when he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through See, Jesus is the perfect mediator who promises us safety in the presence of God. Do you remember earlier in Exodus, as the mountain quakes, it shakes, there's thunder, there's lightning, there's trumpets. I mean, there's this, if you can just think about the presence and what's happening in here. And Israel responds rightly, I think. They they say, Moses, go up, we will talk to you, but don't let us be consumed by the presence of God. And so they stand at the base of the mountain and they wait. Can you imagine what it would take, what kind of courage it would take for someone to literally bust through the presence of God in that moment and ascend the mountain and say, I'm going to go because I'm good. God will invite me up. God will be glad I'm here. God will be glad that I'm coming up to him. Now, in that moment, I think everyone responded very well and said, you know what, Moses? Until God says, you come up, I'm, gonna, I'm good right here. But see, without Jesus, any of our attempts to go to God is like at the base of Mount Sinai. I think for us, many of us and our thoughts and ideas about God have been so subdued that we forget that he is completely righteous and holy and we are completely not. So any attempt to go into his presence alone without a mediator would mean death. But Ephesians 2, I love this. As God is the the mediator of this new covenant, and that's Jesus. It's not a pope. It's not a priest. It's not a pastor. It's not a rabbi. It's Jesus. You come directly to God through Jesus, and Jesus is the perfect mediator because God incarnate, he can represent God to us perfectly, and as God incarnate, or God in human flesh, as a man, he can represent humanity before God perfectly. One mediator, Jesus. And I want you to notice this. Under the law, people had to worship from afar off. Do you remember, like we just read this, Israel, stand back, worship from a distance. But I love this, Ephesians 2. Notice the new language here. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were firmly far off, you see this connection? Have been brought near. 
by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing this flesh, the enmity, which is the law of the commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross by it having put to death the enmity. One of those deceptions I think that we have is that we can do this by ourselves. And scripture says, no, you cannot. Maybe we live under the deception that we can please God on our own. No, you cannot. We forget that his standard is perfection, and that's why we need a mediator. That's why we need a redeemer. That's why we need our sins atoned for in Christ Jesus. Because we overestimate ourselves, and we underestimate our sin. That's why the unbelieving world has trouble and can't figure out when we're saying we're all sinners. That word is so harsh, and it sounds like, ah, I don't know if, if that's the word that we should use here. Why would you say that? I try my hardest. She tries her hardest. We're all good. God will understand. He grades on a curve. See, we overestimate ourselves, and we underestimate God's standard. We underestimate our sin. Romans chapter 3, according to the Old Testament, there's none that are righteous. No, not one. But notice what Paul says that Christ does in that condition. He says, And although you were formerly alienated, hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death. Watch this, I love this. In order to present you before him, holy, blameless, and beyond reproach. Think about this for a second. He ushers you up the mountain that's quaking. And he says, It's okay. Father, because they're completely righteous through me. He's able to present us. Listen to this, what he says. He's able to present you to the Father, holy, blameless, and beyond reproach through his death. So Jesus is our perfect mediator. Exodus 24, verse 3, as we continue in the text. Then Moses came and recounted to the people all the words of the Lord, and then the ordinances, and all the people answered again for the second time with one voice, and said, all the words the Lord has spoken, we will do. We know that's not true. <laughs> Give them 30 seconds. Right, the Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord, and then he arose early in the morning and he built an altar at the foot of the mountain with 12 pillars for the 12 tribes of Israel. And he sent young men as the sons of Israel, and they, burnt, uh, and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed young bulls as the peace offerings to the Lord. I think these are like the priests before the Lord ordains uh, priests, most likely. Uh, verse 6, Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins. And the other half of the blood he sprinkled on the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and he read it in the hearing of the people. And they said again, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. We will be obedient. 
So Moses took the blood and he sprinkled it on the people and said, Behold the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made you made with you in accordance to these words. So the Lord gives them his law. He spells out the terms of the agreement of the covenant and they say, yes, I understand everything perfectly and we will obey. There is no songs. There's no songs that say, I woke up and I don't even know your name. I don't know why I'm here. I don't want you, I don't know what you require. I'm not, there's no surprises. Israel knows exactly what the Lord commands. And to show his people how serious he was in demanding their obedience, God sealed this covenant relationship with blood. This was the second main thing that Moses had to do. After reading the law, he made sacrifices and he sprinkled blood as a confirmation of the covenant. And I think as Moses did these things, he was careful to follow his instructions. Three times in this passage, it uses words like, and then Moses took, and then Moses took, and then Moses took. It it indicates that Moses is following instructions very closely as he's... uh, as he's administering this covenant between God and Israel. So the altar that Moses built was used for more than just one kind of sacrifice. Initially, these various sacrifices were offered by Israel's young men, probably temporary priests, as I said before. One sacrifice was a burnt offering or a whole offering. It meant the entire animal was consumed. Do you remember last week when we talked about the first fruits, the feast that the Lord required? It was almost, in our sense, from our perspective, looking at it from our angle, it looks wasteful. The entire animal was consumed on the altar. There's nothing left. There's no feast. There's hungry people in the camp. And God requires the entire animal to be burnt in a way that it's entirely consumed. So we see that happening. But also, uh, there was some other uh, sacrifices um, that, that would be what we would call a fellowship offering. And unlike the burnt offering, the fellowship offering was not consigned uh, to the flames, but was grilled and served for food. But before this could be done, the blood had to be drained. And blood was the fellowship offerings, was carefully collected in large bowls and and basins and sprinkled on Israel and on the altar. And this was the most important part of the ceremony. Moses took half the blood, he sprinkled it on the altar. And then after reading the book of the covenant, he took the other half and sprinkled it on the people. It sounds so primitive, doesn't it? I mean, when we think about this, we think, what what is going on? I mean, it it almost seems like um, a movie, if you're watching this and your kids are in the room, you're changing the channel immediately. This is gruesome. It looks like some crazy uh, worship experience. And the Bible doesn't really provide a, a mass explanation, but rather expects us to understand this ritual from context and through the rest of Scripture. But not surprisingly, uh, everyone doesn't agree on the blood sprinkling. Some scholars say that the blood symbolized kinship, making God and his people something like blood brothers. Did you ever do that when you're a kid? You know, like you poke, you know, and you're like, no, everybody's, <laughs> some of you guys are like, no, I did not. No. You didn't grow up on Gary Avenue. Um, then after, uh, then there's other, you know, that would say, 
that it was just a ceremonial. Uh, however, I think there was more to the ceremony than this. The blood showed that the covenant was a matter of life or death. In an ancient uh, world, this, this covenant typically was sealed in blood to show what would happen if any party failed to comply. This was symbolism, remember? The same symbolism that God made with Abraham uh, in Genesis chapter 15. God told Abraham to carve up the sacrifice, the animals separating the pieces in two rows. Then God, in the form of a burning torch, while he caused Abram to fall asleep, God himself walked through. He didn't allow Abram to walk through because he said, I know you can't do this. I know you're not going to do this, but I am going to keep this covenant on my own. So God walks through in this moment, it's, it's pretty incredible uh, that we see the blood of God's covenant with Israel meant something similar. In the words of Palmer Robertson, he says, The same pledge to death which played such a prominent role in the inauguration of the Abraham covenant manifested itself in the inauguration of the Moses covenant. Animals were sacrificed, and their blood was sprinkled on people and also on God represented by the altar. This is significant. Which shows the whole arrangement was a matter of life or death. Keeping the covenant would mean that life would ensue. Breaking it would mean the spilling of blood and death. The blood of the covenant held the threat of divine judgment for everyone who broke God's law. This is significant because the pouring of the blood on the altar, God is saying... I promise to keep my word. By sprinkling it on the people, they are agreeing. Through life and death, we promise. The breaking of this covenant would mean someone would have to die. God did not break his And he's the one that died. He stepped in front of Israel's penalty. He stepped in front of our penalty. At the same time, I believe that the blood was a sign of God's mercy. God was not simply showing his people what would happen if they failed. He was showing that there was a way for them to remain in his favor, even after they sinned. To put it another way, although the relationship God established with his people under Moses had a legal basis, its covenant was a covenant of grace. This was shown by the sprinkling of blood. First, Moses sprinkled it on the altar, which showed people that their sins were forgiven, that this bloody altar always signifies the forgiveness of sins. Atonement has been made. God accepted a sacrifice as a payment for sin. The blood was also a propitiation. It turned aside God's wrath, just like the Passover. And so when the blood was sprinkled on the people, this showed that God had accepted their sacrifice and they were now included in his covenant through the forgiveness of sins. The blood and therefore its benefits was applied directly to them. And that points us to Christ whose blood cleanses us from all sin and is the payment for our eternal covenant with God. The blood of Christ cleanses us from all sin and is the payment for our eternal 
covenant with God. In uh, November 2004, it actually took this long, uh, Loyola University Medical Center in Chicago joined 15 other hospitals around the country experimenting with the use of uh, polyhemi, a synthetic blood substitute. So according to the medical center spokesman, uh, Stephen Dalio, um, this would equip medical transport helicopters and ambulances with a way to save life temporarily through a synthetic blood substitute. And this historic change in policy, since ambulances do not carry human blood due due to its short shelf life, So ordinarily, patients transported by emergency vehicles get a saline solution uh, to restore fluid and volume, blood pressure. But unlike blood, the fluid does not contain tissue, nourishing oxygen, so patients uh, could risk organ damage. The synthetic blood would allow them to sustain life longer than simple fluids like saline. But they have not been able to create and manufacture human blood. They can't do it. We still have to have trucks pull in our parking lot here for blood drops. There's no substitute. And while that substitute may keep the victims alive long enough, it keeps them alive long enough for the only thing that will keep them alive forever. And in the same way, these sacrifices for Israel, these covenants for Israel, are not a permanent solution. They cannot be. Every year, through the Day of Atonement, more animals would have to die. More blood would have to be spilled. It would have to go over and over and over and over again. Waiting for the one true eternal sacrifice, Jesus. I want you to notice the passages that Scripture just talks about the blood of Christ. Acts chapter 20, verse 28, he says, Keep watch of yourselves and the flock which the Lord and the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God which he bought with his own blood. Colossians 1, verse 20, through him to reconcile himself to all things, whether things on the earth or things in heaven, by making peace, how through his blood shed on the cross. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace. Hebrews 9, uh, verse 22. In fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood. Listen to this. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place, how? Through the blood of Jesus. Hebrews 13, 12. And so Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy how? Through his blood. First John 1, verse 7. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, 
cleanses us from all sin. In this moment in Exodus chapter 24, it was the moment where Moses and the people of God entered into this covenant of God. And it was the moment that God clued us in that we would need something better. We would need someone better. And his name is Jesus. You know, if, you, if you're struggling with your life, forgiveness and maybe it seemed a little bit like Israel's history maybe it has seemed like you can't find forgiveness maybe you've confessed that thing in your heart over and over and over and over and over again and over and over and over and over again you have failed to keep your promise it may be because you are trying to please God and earn righteousness on your own And it may mean that you need to think and to repent and to respond under the blood of Christ. It simply means that we go to God and we say, God, I have nothing to offer you. But your son, Jesus, said that you loved me so much that you sent him to die in my place. And that if I just believe in him and that his blood atones for my sins, I will not perish, but have everlasting life. This is his promise. Maybe it's today is the day that you need to believe God for that promise. Would you pray with me? Lord, I pray for those in the room today that desperately need your blood to atone for their sins. Lord, I pray for those in the room who have gone through the motions, maybe even, and have uh, claimed your blood and have acted nothing like it. Lord, I pray for those in the room who have verbally expressed their love for you, but their heart is far from you. 